0: Listener production. This podcast was recorded on the ancient lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Australia. I wish to acknowledge their rich and continuing culture and especially pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge and pay respect to any First Nations people from anywhere in the world who may come to hear this podcast. We hope that we may all come to walk with gentle feet, strong minds and compassionate hearts in this global village. No dad wants to be a lousy dad. Aiming to be a good dad is great, but you know what? Being a good enough dad is so much more important. I'm Maggie Dent, parenting educator and author and champion of Boys and Men, and this is The Good Enough Dad, where I chat with committed, caring, sometimes confused, and often funny dads about all the ways they've discovered to be good enough at this parenting gig. My good enough dad today is Stephen Page. That beautiful music you're listening to now is from a new Bangara production, Waru, Journey of the Small Turtle. It's the Bangara Dance Theatre's first production for children and is a co-creation between Stephen and his son, actor Hunter Page Lockhart. Stephen is an award-winning choreographer who had been at the helm of Bangarra Dance Company for three decades when he stepped down as artistic director last year. It seems fitting that the next phase of Stephen's creative life starts with his son, as his first started with his brothers Russell and David with the founding of Bangarra when he was only 24 years old. Stephen hails from the Yugambeh Nation of Southeast Queensland. He also has a stepdaughter, Tamika Walker and two grandkids, Mila and Ivara. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to The Good Enough Dad.
1: <laughs> Hello. How are you?
0: <laughs> Was Waru inspired by this next chapter in your life, Stephen, <laughs> that of being a grandfather?
1: Uh, well, back down at the wharf, after it being uh, renovated, we have a studio there, and we thought we should start putting some other stories of forms on, and that's when the children's idea came up. But, um, you know, Hunter... Stirred him up, and he was working on play school at the time. So <laughs> and um, Yeah. So, yes, <laughs> Waru is inspired by working with Hunter, my love of children's stories and creation stories, and and I'm even more in love with it now with my two beautiful granddaughters.
0: You grew up the ninth of 12 children mm-hmm. in a place called Mount Gravatt in Brisbane. Can you paint a picture of your childhood for those <laughs> who are
1: listening? I'll try to be really brave because I tend to it's, – it's such a vivid childhood. My mother and father were living in Bow Desert, which is a town outside of west of Brisbane. And it's where all the all the Munanjali clan lived. And Munanjali is one of the five clans of the Yugambeh Nation. It's the smallest one, actually. And mum and dad lived in the fringe, obviously in townships, mob being displaced and then put on the fringe and... Dad built their little shed. And so they had most of, they had three girls, a boy, three girls. And when David was born in 1961, I think by the time he was one, mum had to leave because my oldest brother, Philip, uh, had epilepsy and he needed medical help and attention and the resources there. And I think it was a doctor's suggestion in the desert. And she left dad because he wouldn't leave being on country. My father, he lived on country all his life. So she ended up moving to Maracovat, which is sort of like the it was like the the Bronx in South Brisbane. <laughs> it, it was a newly house commission, so yeah. working class, lot of big families. I think the Ludgaters up the road had seventeen children. So I don't know; they must have just put all these big families in one long street, Canterbury Street. And it's
0: been pretty good neighborhood play.
1: Yes, well, and you know, in those days, like all those types of working class, sort of, all those house commissions were all a certain type of build, you know, so freestanding, and we were on a hill. We had a, an old, um, uh, what do they call those, thunderbox toilets. Thunderbox toilets, toilets, toilets yeah. yeah I and I think them. when she first moved there, they used to have the hot boiler down the backyard, and our job was to bring up the hot water for the bathtub, where I would be last with my... Two younger brothers <laughs> to have a wash, and it was terrible sunlight, <laughs> mucky water. But anyway, uh, crazy. It was like one, two, three, four bedrooms. And as you left the family, you got, you stepped up to go into the bigger room, you know. So I think I only had that for a year, I think, because then I left home at 16.
0: There was a lot of singing and, and yeah, dancing. Yeah, lots of and... yep.
1: My dad eventually moved down, back down. I was born in 65, so we moved in 61. My father would come down from being working on country. He was, you know, he was an electric linesman. He was timber cutter. He was a jack of all trades. He was an amazing craftsman, my father. He would come down and always music, always kitchen performances. Our excitement was our father taking us on a Sunday afternoon before sunset to the tip, to the dump. Yeah, And he would wait till... Everyone had left and he would take us and he would just, he found this old television and then he, he was just such a handyman and he, we got our first television. And so from that came all our our love of musicals and Elvis Presley musicals. And my mum, she loved the old thirties and forties movies and, yeah, so she was brought up on, you know, lots of musicals as well. So we sort of had that. And then we had dad's family come down and that was the guitar coming out and country and western singing. And we had – so that we were always hosting sort of gatherings. And I think it's because we were the only ones that uh, had moved out of being in yeah. Um And we were one of the first to move into the city, sort of or you know, yeah. the suburbs of the city. Mum would always lock us up. And so to keep ourselves occupied, we would always let our imagination go go crazy and if it wasn't performing then David was creating something in the backyard and we were all participants. <laughs>
0: I love it. So do you think that's your happiest memories, those performancey things where everything happened, or was there something yeah. else that you can remember as being really no, happy?
1: No. Uh, look, besides all that, that you know, that we we struggled. My mum struggled, my dad struggled, and my father struggled the most. You know, from a little boy, I mean he was hid when he watched his sisters being taken away and so the, my father had a, a very traumatic upbringing. So for him to move to the city and then he got a job in the city and he was an amazing landscaper and a concreter. And I, you know, I still watch my father, like he would come home and he would never get promoted in his job. Um, I think his white mates who were working with would go and get a loan in the mid seventies to to buy a house and he wanted to buy the house. And, he, you know, I remember him going the same, Vincent de Paul got a suit and he dressed up and I remember he'd come home one afternoon and they wouldn't give him the loan. So he, he, him being an Aboriginal man, oddly enough, as a young boy was something I really connected with observing him. And I don't know if that's what the payoff is in my young adult life and being a creator with my sort of, my passive activism really in, in my work. Yeah. So the, I was quite conscious. You know, when we went to the first primary school because it was a new suburb, I was the fairest of the kids. So I would be pulled out of line and my other brothers were darker and they would have to go and get the nurse checks and stuff like that. So I would cry to be in, yeah. in my brother's line. So my childhood was quite vivid around mm. those social experiences, mm. but then all the fun of performing and David dressing up as in, us in drag when we were five and I think I played Donna Ross when my love of drag started I suppose and yeah and then my sisters you know they all leaving home at 13 leaving school at 12 and 13 or not even completing school and they used to walk early in the morning over the story bridge down to the pineapple factory my mother and father had an amazing work ethic you know, so the older girls had it hard. So there was lots of wonderful chaos in our house, and there'd be some fights too. But, um, but you know, that's the time, and that's your fake card you're given, and you you're brought up with this family. But I tell you, the, the the one that keeps us all grounded is just our love of laughter and humour, and the yeah, you know, just the strong bond we had together.
0: Your dad lived through the stolen generations. How do you think that might have impacted the way he was a dad?
1: Exactly. Like he... I mean, my mum met my dad when she was 18. They were both working at the Pineapple Factory. I know it sounds like a film or a story. And my mother, her father, my grandfather, was an English Irishman. And he was a lieutenant in the, in the Navy. And he met my grandmother... Martha and she was a new knuckle woman saltwater woman and so she she wasn't brought up with you know she didn't have much resource living on Minjumbo and, and Strapbroke and different upbringing met him and he you know the, he was sort of middle class and and had had houses and stuff so she was brought up not very connected and he didn't celebrate my grandmother's identity around them. It was safer than to say that they were Indian. Mm-hmm. Can you believe this? Yes. So yeah, really different temperaments of identity journeys for my mother and father. And so when she met my father, her mother and father died when she was 15. So she was brought up by her older brothers and they were very black skin. And mum was one of the fairest of, of the family And they looked after her. but So when she met Dad, he was a bushman. He was a (laughs) Mananjali man from the bush. And he had a rope around his khaki pants, a white singlet. He was dark, tall, and handsome and strong. And she saw him down in the conveyor belt, and he asked her out to the dance. And the odd thing was, she thought he meant to meet her at Cloudland. (laughs) (laughs) But he was talking about the boat shed under the bridge, because segregation, that's where all the blacks met. And so they never met for that date. She was waiting at one place. And so it's a true picturesque sort of picture of that, sort of made me think of that. So going back to my father, you know, mum, they married straight away because she was, <laughs> I think they were only back together for like eight months. And then uh, she felt pregnant. And then it was like 18. And she had Jerry and 19, Geraldine Joyce. My mother was, you know, she had Russell at Thirty-eight, and the doctor said no more. There was twelve children, and she had two miscarriages, and David was a twin. Oh, so he we lost him, but so we would have had fifteen in the family or something. But anyway, so I think for my father, with the way he was brought up, moving off country, this immediate growth Mm -hmm. of kids and family, and he had an old Bedford, and so the only times I can remember strongly with my father, if we if he was because he was working so much was him taking us back on country and we'd go fishing and he'd take us back on Yugambeh country and we'd all pile in the back of the the Bedford truck. And it was always like a Sunday morning and we'd go for the day. And that gave mum time because she used to love cooking and she'd make a great roast mum. And so we always knew we were coming home from swimming in the fresh water and we'd smell that roast coming on the back of the truck to the house. So yeah, with my father's struggling you know, I'm, I'm much more aware of that now, yeah. obviously, when I became a father and then obviously my my joy of reflecting back now uh, being a grandfather. Do you think
0: the fact he worked so hard would have been also to help keep his family together and okay? Yeah, but also
1: think? he worked from a very young age, from yeah. like 11 years old, 12. And he was abused, my father. You know, he was abused by um, workers physically and, yeah, he had a hard, my father. But he was always, he always used to say, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a battler. And he, his principles and his values, he carried everything internally too. And I think that's because of coming from that, you know, generational trauma from his mother. They had eight kids. He was the youngest. And Granny Polo had him when she was 53. So he was the youngest of eight. And mum had eight children in her family as well. And she was one of the youngest. Uh, so... He was a bit of a change of life baby, my dad, Mm. and he didn't have his father around. So he was brought up by women and and his three elder sisters. And it's funny because I was brought up predominantly by strong black women, you know? So yeah, and he he, he used to drink, my father, and that was part of the culture. Concreting, you start at five, you finish at three, you go to the pub to seven and you're home, you smell of grog, you're covered in concrete, you get up again at four. And that was their life. I remember through all my my time of say primary school nineteen seventy, so it would have been all the way up to eighty one. And I remember he worked very hard and, and I think he and what he the complexities that he carried.
0: Do you remember the moment you became a dad, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, I do. Come on. Tell
1: me about it. Hunter's mother, Cynthia Lachard, she was a, a soloist with Balanchine, George Balanchine in New York City Ballet. Oh. And she has a French, Caribbean, Asian, American heritage. I met her because one of the dancers in the company, Kim Walker, they went out and then they got married. She came out. He met her in New York when he was on tour with Sydney Dance. And they came out and then Cynthia and I, we just became really close we just got on and I was always fascinated by her experience and stories and I was working with Graham Murphy, but I was a city dance company and they had divorced <laughs> and um, yeah, and it, we just ended up going out after all of that. And she had a child to Kim, Tamika, who became my stepdaughter. Hunter was a 93 baby and that was the first years of First Nations, that was the international wow. year of Indigenous peoples. And I remember that year quite strongly because a lot of things happened. It was the poor Keating time and Mm. Bangara, I was two years in as artistic director. So everything was happening for me. I think it was 27. Remember seeing that little baby? 27, I think I was, yeah.
0: That little baby boy. Oh,
1: Hunter, you want to know we choreographed his birth. We were at the Royal Alfred. I remember this vividly. It was the 4th of July, which is odd, his year of the Indigenous people. His mother's from America. It was an American Independence Day. Oh, and I was just like, oh my God, This like this character. He was meant to be a character, you know. We only had a mattress on a floor because uh, it was a midwife's room. And she had a little lamp on this small little table. And it, as it was getting darker because it was winter, and it got dark really early. And I remember Cynthia, <laughs> she wanted me to hold her. Oh, the midwife told her to stand. She was going through contractions and being a dancer as she is, she just stripped off <laughs> and she wanted me to hold her under her arms. And I stood up against the wall and then she turned around and I, she, I literally had her under the armpit. She was facing me, pressing into me and literally she just held all her weight yeah. on my shoulder to release the weight from her legs and her water broke. And we fell on the floor, on the on the mattress. It was like a dance. And she literally gave birth to Hunter laying on top of me. And the crazy thing is she wanted me to push her pelvic. And the midwife was there. And then all of a sudden Hunter came out. And then the midwife pulled him over her back. And I can remember I was hopelessly trying to cut the cord. And he looked at me. And he he was... She had a lot of fluid um, water, Sabine. Well, her nickname's Sabine, so if I go from Cynthia to Sabine. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. okay. Yeah, and then the midwife, for a couple of seconds, Sabine was like, is he okay? Because he was quite blue-looking, and then she just put her little finger in his mouth to to air. He put some air in there, and then just like a, like a duck, he just, I can remember, the, the skin changed, and he just spat out all this water, and then he he slowly opened his eyes and looked at me, and that was it for me really and I thought that was a very dramatic entrance
0: born to dance wasn't he as well well it was dance and his mother jumped I
1: mean I thought I was doing Dirty Dancing the (laughs) sequel and I thought I was Patrick Swayze I was like laying on the ground and instead of doing the river lift we did the lift on the mattress yeah Oh, wow,
0: that's a beautiful, beautiful memory
1: Tamika was there too oh little four-year-old on the ground and she said I can see him oh she was <laughs> he's coming she was had the best view she was our commentator <laughs> and she was telling her mother to push and press and she was, she was going mad at me telling me to help help Stephen help oh, you love it. yeah yeah.
0: Consciously or unconsciously, is there anything from the way your dad had been a father that you might have chosen to bring forward as you became a dad?
1: My brother Russell had two kids by then, and he had kids quite young. He was 21. My brother Michael had two girls by then. And then my sisters, they all had children. My sister was pregnant with Darren, elder sister, where mum was pregnant with Russell, and the my sister had Darren two months before my mum had Russell, so that Darren was a uh, <laughs> <An> uh, uncle. <laughs> well, uncle, Russell was an uncle even before uh, was, he came <laughs> out. So, and that's why I talk about the women in the yeah. family. And I know you're asking about yeah. my father. Yeah, no, no, and this is I. Really important. I was just reflecting parenting, really. And when Hunter was born, I thought the novelty would wear off really quick because there's so many kids. kids in the family, you know but i do remember my father seeing hunter and i think that moment was very vivid for me i think going home and it, the boys and and being with my father and you know and and hunter's um yeah Hunter's a lot blacker than me, <laughs> so I think <laughs> I think my father was looking at me like and you know and Cynthia, you know Sabine was from uh, <laughs> you know she was from the Caribbean, so my dad just thought she was absolutely gorgeous, and so he was in love with Sabine. We had a nice little bond, and Hunter had a beautiful bond with my father.
0: I just want to say that I've met lots of dads who have consciously taken the way they father from mm. the way their mother mothered yeah, so you when you're saying I've got these strong women around that I've yeah. probably modelled some of my choices as a father on them as well, that's that's actually more common than many men believe.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the, the organic way of being brought up. Like I was cooking spaghetti for my brothers because yeah. everyone was at work because that's the way it was and yeah. you'd live on a terrible canned spaghetti mixed with my own version and I was cooking that at five, six years yep. old. So I was feeding my two younger brothers So you always, uh, you know, as I said there- In a
0: carer role.
1: Well, carer role. I think it's that maternal caring role and we always had to clean up and wash up and mop and I would have to walk a kilometre to the shops for mum and so I was doing a lot of that at a young age. I would miss doing all the things with dad. That's when he would just take us on country and we'd have our own little contemporary men's business, you know. (laughs) But uh, that maternal influence was very strong.
0: And I've seen- um... In my travels as well, that children can look after children. I mean, I had a, you know, we were in our family, we had family. six. In those
1: days, you just. It was survival. The fear and survival, you know. We would be home at midnight and mum would do the night shift and my father would have to go back on country and the girls were teenagers and they were sort of out and, you know, you were bathing your younger brothers and, yeah, it's just extraordinary. and. These days, you would, <laughs> you, you'll have someone knocking at the door <laughs> and taking the kids away from you. But it's just big families, and yeah. it it is survival. Yeah. yeah,
0: big families will tell you that they were all caring for, for their younger siblings yeah.
1: because there's just not enough time. And that family bond just becomes more innate. It builds a fragility. That's what it builds.
0: Don't you think it builds a strength as well it as it fragility? It does build a strength,
1: but the, what I'm saying, the, the fragility of care, because you sort of know how you were brought up. You know that your older sisters had it harder. I was always grateful and always aware, you know, like that my mother would have had probably today, she probably would have been diagnosed with, you know, a high level of mental health and depression, you know, and my mother never drank or smoked. Oh my Lord, I would have drank if I had 12 kids. I mean, you know, it's crazy. Like she just, she was a survivor, you know, they didn't grow up with resources and infrastructure and, I think every, as you got to the teenager in our family, <laughs> you were quickly hurrying, trying to get out of the house. I think my sisters just married the first man they saw, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, they probably hate me for saying that. Um, but they, they left home at quite young, and they, they had children quite young.
0: You followed your creative drive to Sydney, and lived a distance from Hunter for many years. So how do you stay connected while you're so busy with yeah, building Bancara? unfortunately,
1: and- yeah, I, Hunter must have been five, four or five. So I separated from the family when he was about five. I remember I had to tell him to, he was five, and we sat at the back of the yard because I think I lost my temper. I was never physical with Sabine, but I, did get frustrated because she she was older than me. And also I was, uh, I had a big responsibility with the company. Mm. And I remember this day I got really angry and I was yelling in the back room, just yelling because I was tired and I couldn't articulate my frustration. And we were falling out of love with each other. And Bengara was just, you know, it peaked at 95, we became a major organization in 97. I was flying overseas, coming back, directing, closing, opening Sarah's Olympics in 2000. We had just created four works. My brother and I, we were all, you know, we were all trying to keep this contemporary tribe of a dance company alive. And one thing I respect about Sabine was that she, she knew that. She knew that I had a distinctive job as a creator. But What's beautiful about our relationship with Sabine is that we were very decent. We knew straight away it wasn't about us. It was about the children. That's it. And even I had a – Hunter had a second house. He had a room. We co-parent. Even if I wasn't there a lot, I would try to – or any of my savings, I, you know, got her a new car for the first time and, you know, like – Just helped. I was able to help financially support. I mean, I wasn't getting a lot, and also, you know, I've got my other brothers back at home and sisters, and you know, you have mob on your payroll, and the aunts don't pay well. So, you know, it's funny because as soon as I left Bangor at the end of last year, they all stopped talking to me. No, (laughs) Um, but um, but you know, when you're parenting, also you're also you're also an uncle, and you're a brother, and you're a constant. Those skills of parenting are all part of sacred leadership within a clan and kinship systems, you know? And that's what my father had. And those values and principles, I think, uh, were very strong in all of us. You and
0: know? that would have driven you as Hunter got towards puberty
1: and adolescence. Well, well I moved in. We ended up yeah, renting a so four-bedroom house um, when Hunter Sabine was working. Her, her career was growing. And also, there was about three friends who were all single mums. And they all helped each other. And I really admired that. And I actually thought it was something that I connected with. Oh, they used to give me a hard time, you know. Really? I'd come, I oh, find that yeah. hard to believe. From. I'd come over and they'd go, oh, Bengari, you've been out there <laughs> and where did you go? You know, and they'd stir me up all the time. And the beautiful thing is for me having older sisters, I used to stir them up as well. And they would just laugh. But what I loved was their support for each other, the women. You know, Sabine went away to work. Hunter was having one-word responses to his mother, and she was getting frustrated. And so we ended up getting a a bigger house. And then, you know, obviously, Sabine and I were in separate rooms. And um, he just loved it. He just – and Tamika loved it as well. I mean, she was just finished high school. Yeah, he – we just sort of bonded. I think it was like two years we lived together of that time. But also Hunter, the way I could see Hunter a lot when he was little was I put him into theater and (laughs) he was on stage. He was on stage at six years old. So the beautiful thing, Sabine would let him come on tour. She loved him being around work and she was a dancer professionally. So she loved the arts rehearsal room environment and Hunter would sit in the room and his little eyes and he would watch me create and he'd look at me and I'd be telling stories to an ensemble clan of dancers. And, and then all the traditional mob who would entrust Bengal with the stories would come from off-country and they'd come in and then they would adopt Hunter and then they'd give him Yumanu, they'd give him a language name from Yungu people or the Saibai or Miriam Torres Strait. Like he was just around this rich Most sense of culture. Yeah. And Sabine loved that because she she knew how important that was to me. And so he was able to share that with me. And that sort of, he got all those experiences, you know, and I would take him on tour most of the time and uh, he, from when he was really little. So, um,
0: But that traditional part of culture too of men guiding their boys towards manhood, how lovely that you had a whole... Dance company as well, well as your brothers. Uh, th- my brothers, brothers and space. David
1: and Russell were good yeah. with him. And, and he went through hard times, Hunter, with me, losing my brothers. And he was very close to and, uh But he, you know, we went through that together. And just watching him now as a father is extraordinary.
0: I may be wrong, Stephen, but essentially you kind of became a bit of the father figure. Of Bangarra, so really, like all those young dancers are probably like looking up at you as. What do you reckon? Is it kind of how it was, or was it a joint thing? Yeah, look,
1: I struggled a bit because I had to. When Russell passed, I really struggled, and I sort of just dived into work. And David and I got a lot closer, and because also we were, we were caring for cultural stories through dance so therefore we weren't just like an art for art's sake commercial dance company. Way so more. what we inherit, the, the care and responsibilities, a part of that is leadership and parenting. You know, I would fall over. I was very vulnerable and I'd be honest about my mistakes. I think that's what has taught me the skill of clanship and collaborating because I would always communicate with the dancers and tell them what I was feeling and, why I would make decisions. I would always let the artists and those cultural leaders of the company, even though we were in a mainstream, I would always want them to own the leadership with me. And I mean, I know it's cliche to say, trust me, you just had to be vulnerable and honest, especially working in this Frigiline, in this culture of the contemporary and tradition and maintaining that integrity.
0: I think also the only way you can go to that vulnerability Mm. is that they feel they belong and building that. That's what I'm kind of saying because the company is, Mm. it is such a powerful space when you, you know, you do these things for a period of
1: time. Yeah. My father had those. Like I remember getting, learning a lot that from my father and being on country and he would tell us that we had to listen to country and when we were around and we, he'd always make sure that we had respect for our elders and, if we saw relatives or uncles or aunties, we wouldn't have forced upon us, but we were taught that very young. And Hunter saw that at a very young age. So he'd always pay respect, see if anyone wanted anything, look after the elders around him. And so there was something we were always brought up with.
0: I still think you're like the father figure. I still think that's <laughs> that space. I mean, 30 years is kind of the... Because you're the creative yeah. director, then you've got to bring that out from people. So I, I just... I think you need to say, yes, Maggie.
1: <laughs> okay, Maggie, and I think I you're was. You're trying to fob me off, I can hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't good after David passed, though. No, so, yeah. no,
0: and that was a really difficult time. You said that Hunter featured, and even in Hunter's words, he said it was a journey you did together. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a beautiful thing to say with two men. So you've mentioned Russell, and he died in 2002, and then, David in 2016 and both of them had been with you every step of Bangara. Yeah, yeah. And we know that grief can be such a beast and a struggle. How did you do that and hold Bangara oh, together? Any idea?
1: I'm able to reflect that a lot more now since I stepped out from Bangara at the end of last year. It's a little bit more triggered now and vivid because I have gotten off a day-to-day humbug routine. I call it the Aboriginal sushi train. Like I just sort of Got off it. So I've had a lot of time in this last five months especially. And great, you know, beautiful, reflective memories. Packing up my office, I was able to think I had to pack up David's music studio and just finding little things and little cards from an opening night or, you know, so there's beautiful reflecting back. We do become denial when grief and I have a big family and I was pretty much responsible for their burial and sending them over into the beautiful spirit world. And so I had to put up this front, really. Also, I was wild and I was angry. And and you have these questions and then you blame yourself and then you, was it too much being in this public mainstream view and the work you did we had young families, we had a very wonderful, dysfunctional family back home, where there was more and more populated in kids and grandkids. You know, and your parents are getting older, and anyway, um, yeah, you do become denial uh, in denial, but it's only till now that I've been able to look at it all and go, "You know what? Those are the things I've learned. Those are the things I've observed. I'm just so lucky to have a clan, my family, my immediate family around me, and obviously, Hunter's been extraordinary mm. through this time.
0: Uh, and but the all, gift of two beautiful grandchildren, and
1: also art is a medicine, you know. Yes. Like, and when I say in denial, I mean people thought I was hiding behind those creation experiences or throwing myself into creativity, but I found it cleansing and healing. And it's because what when we tell stories, like I said before, like we're reclaiming our traditions and we're putting them into this contemporary vessel today. And we started with a blank canvas. Bangara grew out of a kitchen. And there's no other First Nations full-time performing arts company in the world. And we didn't know that to like, the, you know, probably through early 2000s, we were traveling to you know, a huge tour of Canada and connecting with First Nations um, Canadians and going to Six Nations reservation and uprooting mob from a reservation, bringing them to a mainstream theater in Canada, putting them in a theater and showing them a contemporary ceremony. They don't have that there. And I they're know. sitting in the front row crying. And so you have these connections and the Inuit mob in the northern parts and... Greenland and the Maori mob and the Pacifica mob and you just all these similar cultures where where art is a huge part of their their life you know and so uh, I had a great job like I and I still have a great job being a storyteller and I tell you that it, my job and, and, and my creative skills and spirit was probably what saved me through the journey of my my brothers both passing
0: exactly I'm a Authorised celebrant and I've done over 300 funerals. Yeah. Including an Aboriginal elder funeral and the ceremony and the the things that go in amongst it. Yeah. The song, the rituals, it supports us on the journey. Yeah. Not all of it, but it definitely takes us on a journey.
1: And it's interesting, a lot of, you know, especially over the last two decades, a lot of displaced urbanised clans who are breathing life back into rekindling language, rekindling cultural practices And the death ceremonies, life cycles, practices are are, are one of the the major ones because a lot of them aren't natural deaths and a lot of them are traumatized, you know, and so we do find our way where we bring our cultural and our sense of healing to those services, yeah.
0: Do you think your experience as, you know, as an Indigenous and an Aboriginal man shaped you as a dad in any particular way or is it just a being a dad, regardless of culture.
1: It's interesting. I'm really fascinated by gender power in, in tradition and cultures. Now, I shouldn't say power because I just don't think that English word is the right spirit of how leadership is changing in communities. And I heard a beautiful story about there's a Jungo traditional women's language that is dying out. And I was fascinated to know it was only language for women, and there's this spiritual power or resilient power in that where's this sort of male energy of leadership and the way that you lead is such a this testosterone or sort of this external way of doing things. I don't know, I've always felt more grounded in the sort of maternal leadership. And, and I've always been brought up around women. Mm. So it's interesting even watching Hunter now, mm. father, uh, generations of fathers now. And, and I think that's because we, we are going through this humanity change of who we are as, as a gender. I know there's a lot of stories that sit in our First Nations traditions that are, based around these confined constructs of gender forms. And I really find it fascinating. And I wonder, as a man, if you're... I just think your your life experiences and your journey as a human, and you're in this vessel of a label of a man, that the way you measure your experiences, if you're brought up predominantly in a maternal environment, I... I really do feel like you have this sort of brackish of um, values.
0: I was doing a tour in um, Western New South Wales at one point and yarning with some um, Aboriginal elder women. Yeah. And um, one of them said, oh, she's quite happy. She's in, you know, 70s, but um, none of the boys in her whole extended family can get a tattoo without checking with grandma.
1: (laughs) And I thought, whoa,
0: that's... That sort of <laughs> says, right, you just got to get someone's approval that they really value and respect, and also still a tiny bit scared of.
1: <laughs> and, and also, my experiences with traditions on male and female leadership and parenting and customs and practices. Right up until the end of the 90s, I viewed this co parenting in tradition where men and women's business is mm. the right humane ingredients and portions of what makes a strong human and it's not really based on male or female or or gender sort of power you know you watch the women prepare young men's business boys by a three-hour ritual body painting where they the silence of them sitting in the lap of a cross-legged mother with their head on their, on their lap, while she paints the face and the body, and the women paint the body, to prepare him for manhood. So he does a spiritual connection dance, and he's sung by the song man. So there's this whole process of this initiation which people go, oh, that's ritual, that's sacred, and you sort of go, it's life. It's just another way of tradition. Anyway, the point I'm making is that the female, the mother energy, the maternal strength, is the the core for that boy to become a young man. So I'm just glad I got the good old humane fate card to (laughs) live this life in my First Nations backyard.
0: So we all muck up as parents; it's only human. Can you share a, maybe a dad fail moment, or a grandpa, <laughs>
1: or a
0: poppy fail moment you've had that oh, make you realise you're human?
1: Yes, uh, I have a really dry sense of humour and and a wit. And Mila is four. Unfortunately, she's already a dancer and a singer and.
0: What do you mean, unfortunately? <laughs>
1: I keep telling her there's no money in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> but it's never been about the money. Um, it's been about creating and she's, she's got the good dose. If she spends too much time with me and if I go home and the next couple of days, some crazy things she'll say to her father or she'll, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll play silly characters to Mila and... I might talk gibberish to her or I make up my own words. And he'll ring me and say, Dad, she cracked me up. What have you been telling her? <laughs> and, and like I just put her into this uh, imaginary, crazy storytelling world. It can't and be a
0: problem, surely. No, she
1: loves it. She loves it. And, and if I say something like, uh, Hey, don't muck around like that, or you know, talk silly to her. She'll go, "Hey, don't muck around like that." Like she, because they're just sponges, you know. They mimic, and she has the best sense of humor, and she's very funny. She's a funny girl, and then Vara's um, just as she's just as funny. They're just really gorgeous little. Girls. I don't
0: think that's muck ups. I think that's oh, what that's they not all muck
1: need. up. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I yeah, like I, I. Just have such a I don't know, it's just you just surrender your energy with them and and then and that gives you more admiration for how Hunter's connecting with the girls.
0: We all worry. We worry about our kids and, and now Hunter's a dad, you'll probably worry about his <laughs> his beautiful girls. But what are your, what are your deep concerns about, you know, Hunter and, and the girls as we go forward?
1: Oh, look, I I think it's all our concerns, especially for the girls, what sort of generation they're going to live in, the challenges that they're going to face. You know, Hunter's 30. He was born in 93. You know, he was married at 25. Laura, his partner, is a Welsh, amazing Welsh woman. He was about my age when I had him, when he had Mila. He's working in this creative arts world at the moment where acting jobs come and go. And, you know, that's why he started to do a writer's course. And, you know, obviously he's a producer and he's a director too. And he's trying to, he took my money and got an ABN and started up a company. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to do that yet. But I watch him with the girls and I watch him with Miller. And I think it's just, you know, like you just want the best for them and you just want them to be happy. But they're very honest in their relationship and they learn from each other. Laura and Hunter, Miller's mum. And they just got this really instinctive love of co-parenting and working together. Now, look, that might fall out in years. I don't think it will. There's just something strong about them. And also just the girls, like him and I are always talking about the world the girls are going to live in, you know. And so Hunter knows that the balance of this crazy digital social world we'd live in, uh, the mental health concern, I think that's one of his biggest and my biggest concerns, you know, Hunter struggles, you know, and I think, you know, we can talk about mental health much more openly and acceptance. And so we're much more aware of that. And then we always do say every now and again, I wonder how these girls are going to, you know, what sort of world they they'll be living in.
0: You've won so many accolades and awards over the years with Bangarra, but what's your, what oh, do you well, reckon your biggest? not
1: any good because I've got no work
0: today. Yeah, <laughs> what was your biggest win, as a parent or a step parent? What do you reckon? You know, what have you? You're quite happy to tick off that? Yeah, I did that well.
1: God, that's crazy. It's it's funny because I. The thing that I would say I ticked off well would probably be just sustaining for that length of time a First Nations mainstream theatre company and leading that and learning from that and amazing clan relationships. Like, I always feel like the process for me getting there in a story. Or my process for five weeks, creating a work before it has a a Western system process of an opening night and a closing night. Like I, I felt the 33 works I did for Bengara, they're all part of one big long serpent process.
0: And that Hunter's have been a big part of the serpent yeah, process. Yeah,
1: Hunter has. He's been in everything. He, yeah. You know, he told me he's been in the industry for, for 24 years. And, and he's, he's only right. 30. You know, he's 30 and he was on stage at six. You know, he did Clever Man. He He's pretty regular on the ABC drama. You know, he's in the newsreader at the moment. And I think his, his energy and his connection with me and, and as a son, as a friend, as my young man, like he's watching me go through this. So I think with those accolades that you say, I think they're really just that sort of you know, mainstream <laughs> nudge to acknowledge this true process that I do within the company. And, yeah, that, that's the, the thing I'm most proud of. And, and to pass that message to go on to Francis Rings now, like, who's, who's grown out of the company.
0: What is the one thing you'd like them to learn from you as the father figure?
1: Just to be true to themselves. Yeah, and always just be hungry to look, learn, and listen.
0: If you could wind back time, Stephen, and go back to before you became a dad and a stepdad almost at the same time, and you could <laughs> give yourself some advice, you know, from a fifty-eight-year-old wise man back to that younger man who's just become a dad, what what advice would you give yourself?
1: Probably just to give more time. I wish I would have gave more time when the kids were younger of my time and probably meaning more the immediate home time. I think that home time is really important. I watch Hunter and he's like, Oh yeah, I'm up every, every morning at six Cause some little young woman <laughs> at four year old uh, has, wants to tell me about her dream and just watching him like organize his weekends and activities with the girls. I would do it, and it was sort of birthdays and Christmases and stuff and being there. But I think, I don't know if it's advice, but I just wish I would have learned how to be more present.
0: It is one of the biggest challenges, dads tell me, that pull to provide and support and grow their their own capacity. You know, it all happens about the same time that you have little ones, and it's that how... We talk about the work-life balance. It's not a balancing act because no one can get it right anyway, but it is one of those regrets that how can you... Yeah. But
1: that, that's the Western system construct. It
0: is the Western system. Of,
1: of system and how it's evolved. It, it's interesting watching a lot of those values back on country in their sort of kinship structures, you know, and hunting time with women and kid boys time with men, and then the father will take the, both the boys and the girls to. There's a sense of always... Being around in the energy. Someone's growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's the only advice I would uh, would be more about, learning how to to, to balance that a bit more. Yeah.
0: yeah, and to know it matters.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's more vivid now. It's more potent now when I get to watch it through Hunter's Lens. Yeah, yeah.
0: to... Special granddaughters have got more time with you because now you're looking at <laughs> Well, I out feel bad. I was bit.
1: supposed to go over yesterday and I, I usually go over the weekends and I had to apologize yesterday. And I thought, oh no, I don't want to start doing that. Like, I might live for long and I should be spending every time with them. Yeah. Oh, those
0: girls will just let you know how much you disappointed them. Trust me, <laughs> that's how girls can do that.
1: <laughs> it's good to hand them back, though, at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't have said it out loud, but <laughs> Stephen, can I thank you for your time?
1: Oh, thank you. And sorry for my long winded answers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you're a storyteller. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do.
1: <laughs> thank you for having me, Maggie.
0: <laughs> Stephen Page, former artistic director of the Bangara Dance Company. Wow, Stephen had so much wisdom in a monkey's story. So let's grab a few quick points to add to the good enough. Dad Checklist. Firstly, it's not always dads who can influence how we become a father or who has the greatest impact. Being raised by women, strong women, as Stephen said, can make you an incredible dad. Secondly, there is more than one way to be a man and a father, and you've got to work out how to do you. No matter what your influences are, whether they're culture, as for Stephen, religion, environment, whatever it may be, you just don't have to be a cardboard cutout of bandit to be a good enough dad. And thirdly, if you missed out being that present dad because you were doing that juggle between the work and being home... And you kind of have a few regrets, you can get that chance again when you become a grandfather. Be like Stephen and lap it up and enjoy the grandies or look forward to that experience if you're <laughs> if you're not one yet. I'm Maggie Dent. This is the Good Enough Dad. Follow us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts.